one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you and yours are well, safe, healthy, doing okay, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, you know, here we are, another Friday, another podcast, another week is gone, another week of lockdown, another week of stories and news, and another week in which we're still none the wiser about lots of stuff, least of all football. Even if there has been some sort of clarity from other parts of Europe, we saw the news from France, for example, that the prime minister there said that no sport, no mass gatherings can take place until September, which has effectively brought an end to professional football, uh, the seasons anyway, in Ligue 1 and Ligue 2. And um, from what we see, uh, PSG have been confirmed champions and they've decided promotion and relegation. In some cases, it's probably more cut and dry than in others, but it strikes me that potentially with so many games left to play, despite the fact this is an unprecedented pandemic, etc., etc., there is room for legal action if you're on the wrong end of a decision, which means you'll be playing football in a lower division. And the idea of them trying something like that in England, because of the money that's at stake, the difference between the Premier League and the difference between the Championship and all the money that's involved in the Premier League, I just don't know how they can make any of those decisions. Like, if they decide to give Liverpool the title, which, you know, is an inevitability, if football continues... Liverpool are going to be champions, and deservedly so. They've won so many games, have so many points. But right at the bottom, how do you tell teams who could potentially escape relegation? And we've seen it happen before. Remember the year West Ham somehow did it, and other te- Portsmouth maybe one year, when it looked like for sure they were going down, but put together these runs to stay in the Premier League and maintain the income and all those millions of pounds, you know. They might argue that it's not uh, unprecedented for a team to drag itself out of the depths and somehow survive. So I, I don't know how they're going to be able to do that if, if that's the road they go down in England. But we heard about Project Restart as well, that the Premier League are in discussions about how to get football going again. And um, the Premier League director of football has uh, issued a document to all clubs saying that these are the guidelines that are going to be in place. So there's going to be testing for all players and officials 48 hours before returning to training. All footballs and stuff like that is going to be disinfected. Uh, All staff have to wear PPE, which, you know, how do you how do you justify that? How do you justify football club staff wearing PPE? when some hospitals and care homes and nursing homes can't get it. How do you do that? Players have got to wear a snood or a mask at all times. I mean, how do you train properly wearing a 
a face mask, even if it's a light one? How do you train properly wearing a snood? Is it hygienic? Who who washes your snood? What do you do with it? Is there going to be a snood dump? Are they going to build a hole in which to throw all these snoods? Is it going to be like a radioactive dump of snoods? I don't know how they're going to do this. Uh, there's uh, another thing. Players and staff will be banned from spitting at the training ground. I mean, how on earth do you enforce that? I mean, you can tell players it would be better if you didn't spit, but, you know, has anyone watched football ever? What do footballers do? They run, they jump, they kick a football, and they spit, and they do snot rockets. Like, maybe they don't have to. Maybe it's habit or something, but, you know, I, I don't know what what's the punishment if you see a player spitting. I mean, what do you do? Do you, like, have to disinfect the pitch? Does the player get sent home? Does he get 100 lines? I must not spit on the training ground. Seems weird. But look, it's, you know, it's not abnormal for a big business to have discussions about how they get their business back up and running again. I think, you know, football is not the only business that will be having these kind of talks and making these kind of plans. It's just how sensible they are and how enforceable they are and and everything else. A little bit later on, I'm going to be talking to Nigel Mitchell, who you will know, uh, many of you will know, of course, as the pitch side man uh, at Arsenal. He does the interviews and does the bits and pieces at halftime, but of course, also does stuff for the club's official channels, podcasts and videos and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to talk to him later on about what's, uh, you know, what's a typical match day for him and what it's like working for the club and being in the position that he in and doing the work that he does so hopefully you'll enjoy that he is our second guest on the show today he is our second nigel our first nigel is a different one this week the arsenal supporters trust released a report which predicted that arsenal could register a 19 million pound loss for the year to the end of may if the rest of the current campaign is played behind closed doors as yet we don't know when football is coming back beyond that if next season is played behind closed doors the impact on Arsenal could be massive, with losses hitting somewhere in the region of £144 million, uh, which would be catastrophic uh, even for a club owned by a billionaire. Uh, and there are wider implications, of course, for football as a whole. With me to discuss that is uh, Arsenal Supporters Trust member Nigel Phillips. Hi, Nigel. Afternoon, Andrew. Can you just sort of outline the the broad scope of, of this report that you've put together? Because we, we published a bit on Arsblog News and there were people saying, well, how can you publish this? You don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But would it be fair to say that, that Arsenal and many other businesses have to try and predict what the financial impact of uh, this crisis is going to be, even without all the full information? Absolutely. The scenario planning which is going on by, by all clubs at the moment at every level from Premier League down to, to National League and, and, and Senior Non-League is, is significant. And that's why people just took those early decisions around furlough, which have been turned back and, and the various, um, various other measures that people have taken. But we can't underestimate how massive this, is, this impact will be on, on football and Arsenal, not just for now, but for the longer term. In terms of the, the credibility of the numbers, Arsenal's financial year end is the 31st of May. So we were, we were so close to reaching that period. With, with a high degree of certainty, we would have known what the figures are by, let's say, the, um, the middle of March. And then by that stage, you've only got April and May, May to run. So our, our estimate in, in the column 
which assumes, and, and this is obviously a fact now, that the remaining 10 league games for Arsenal will not be played in front of crowds. We don't know whether they'll be played at all, but if they are played, they will be behind closed doors. So the, the estimates we've had to make are around the three um, the three revenue streams that the club have, which is which are gate receipts, it's broadcast, and then it's commercial and retail. So by, by tweaking the numbers, Andrew, we're able to come up with a, what we believe is a fairly robust figure for the end of end of May 2020. So uh, the idea that next season, uh, if and when it happens or, you know, whenever it might happen, could be played entirely behind closed doors, I, I think we can all see the, the, the impact that that would have because all those revenue streams um, will, will be badly affected. There are implications, uh, you know, for match day revenue, for season tickets, uh, you know, the, the season ticket, I think the season ticket renewals are up at the end of May. Um, that would be a massive amount of money that Arsenal were expecting to bring in as it stands, they may well have to put money out um, to refund season ticket holders who aren't getting the games that they paid for. Yeah, you make some good points there, there, Andrew. The, I mean, the prospect of a whole season behind closed doors is for for a club like Arsenal who have, have done all that work for the new stadium, for the size of the stadium. We've got. 9,000 premium seats of the club, whether that be club executive box, diamond club, everything associated with that was about match day income. Pretty much as we see up in N17, it's a very high high business model towards what they, they achieve on a match day. If you were to completely wipe that out for a club like Arsenal, that takes somewhere around about £90 million out of your your revenue for a season mm. and and arsenal's reliance on on gate money which is 25% of total revenues doesn't seem a lot when you compare it with with bournemouth who you know they have an average crowd of about 10 and a half thousand virtually everything they get is is tv money but a whole season behind behind closed doors would mean significant impacts to the club in in terms of the money we spend, because the the club has been work, operated on a self-sustaining basis for, for many, many years. So what do you do with your payroll, which is your number one outgoing? Mm. And you, you touched on the, on the very valid point there about season ticket money in advance for the next season. So gold members, so that's general emission season tickets, their renewal date is normally 31st of May. 2020 for the 2021 season the platinum so that's club level and boxes they go even before the gold members so when everyone talks about the you know arsenal have a lot of cash 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 that cash figure is a one-day figure on the 31st of may at the end of every season and and there's a huge amount of that figure is money in advance for the next season and that money in advance can somewhere be, to, be between 60 and 70 million pounds. And what do Arsenal do with that 60 or 70 million pounds when they've got it up front? Well, during June, July, and the first half of August, very little revenue is coming in. And Arsenal have a, have a cash burn, a, a monthly spend of somewhere between 27 and 28 million pounds. So if you said there was no income coming in and you had June and July to to pay you could have 55 56 million pounds to go out there 
that cash flow comes from the season ticket money, which we've all ponied up mm. before the 31st of May. So just on a short-term basis, you see that there's a, there's a cash flow squeeze going on as well. Speaking of the cash reserves, it's one of those things that people talk about quite a lot. And Arsenal, you know, famously have had significant cash reserves down the years and the numbers have fluctuated, of course. But um, isn't there part of obviously part of that is 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 used for operations, for keeping things going, as you said. But there are also other outgoings and and, uh, there's a need to keep cash in the bank to service loans and the stadium and, and those kind of things as well. You're following, you're following it well there, Andrew. So this this is the famous debt res, debt service reserve account, which when when the Arsenal put the debt in place for the Emirates Stadium, um, which which initially was two hundred and sixty million pounds, and we're now down to about a hundred and sixty million. The people who lent that money, and this was once the stadium had been completed and there's there's revenue streams and you can see what's going on, you can make predictions, the people who lend that money, long-term money, because you know, some of this money goes out until 2031, we've got another 11 years on, on, a, on a chunk of it, they need certain security to ensure that if football performance drops off if you don't qualify for Europe, heaven forbid there's a relegation, that they need to know that there's money there to service their debt when revenue streams aren't as as expected. Mm. So there's always this money which is locked up in this debt service reserve account, and it's about £36 million. Not good because you can't use it, but in times like now, it is good because that will service the stadium debt for about 18 months. So I'm not, you're supposed to keep it topped up. So you're supposed to, once, once you've, if you use some from that, you're supposed to keep it up to this level. Yeah. But it's exactly for times like this that you have that debt service reserve account. So that's the first amount which is always got to be taken off because that's not freely available. And, yet, and then you've got your, your, your general debt service because that's in, in, a, in an, an account and then you've got the money that you're paying as you're going along. The other big unknown that people seem to ignore or don't want to believe exists is, is the money that we owe on players. Yeah. And, you know, over the last three summers, Arsenal have not been shy in the transfer market. I mean, it's, you, you can go through a, ten, a dozen players and come up with 300 million of money spent. We haven't received so much in. And like a, like a prudent club, you don't pay it all, all up front. You stagger it, you pay it, you string it out for as long as you can. So Arsenal still have money owing on players somewhere between, and we, and we, we don't know this exactly, but you, you look at the accounts and you look at the debtors and creditors and provisions for payments and all the rest of it. It's circa £120 million owing on players. Not all in one year. But there will be money owed, and it's predominantly to to overseas clubs. I mean, the only the only UK player who's coming is uh, is Tierney, mm. and I would imagine that if you sign someone in in the summer of 2019, you make a down payment, and, and last summer, which had Pepe, Saliba, and Tierney coming in, the net spend Arsenal had was 93 million pounds. So we've estimated that they probably spent 
upfront, maybe maybe 20, 25 million of that, leaving another sort of 70-ish to be sp- spread out over, over a number of years. But then you've got to add that on top of what's already there for for Luis and Torreira and Leno and Socrates and Guendouzi, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, there's a big chunk which is coming out of there as well, which let's say it's, it's paid on, on contract period, which is contracts, player contracts run to the 30th of June. Some of that money owed would come from season ticket money, which is, um, which is not coming in this summer. So once again, we've got another outflow with nothing coming in to balance it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's going to be an issue for football in general as football clubs look to cut costs and, and look at, uh, you know, their revenue streams just disappearing overnight. The money that football clubs owe to each other, the money that football clubs uh, owe to agents as well. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. the, the the Premier League, I think, last year around the start of April, they listed um, the, the Premier League club's payments to agents, how much each club paid to agents for their transfer dealings. Uh, you know, I, I think Liverpool were top uh, that year because they paid a lot for, for some players. They haven't yet released those figures, which is quite interesting, but that's another aspect of, of outgoings that people don't necessarily think about. Well, let, let me just jump, jump in there, Andrew. So, so yeah. for the period you're talking about, which was essentially the eighteen nineteen transfer two window. Liverpool were top of that league, forty four million pounds out to agents. Yeah, Arsenal. You know, it, it mirrors pretty much where you are in the league. We we were eighth in that league, at eleven point two million pounds paid to agents. We have been anxiously awaiting the the release of of the current figures, which last year were came out the first week of April. Yeah. Um, this year they they haven't come out. We are predicting because of Pepe and David Luiz that Arsenal will have come up that table and would be significantly higher than eighth and significantly higher than than eleven million. Mm. Whether that's the involvement of big super agents like George Mendes and Kia Jurabchian, I guess we can only speculate, but certainly it will be interesting. Speculate, uh, speculate yeah. very well there, Andrew. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see those figures. So, you know, look, this is, this is a difficult situation. And again, it's worth pointing out that, that Arsenal are not the only club who are going to face situations and financial issues like this. But, you know, as this is an Arsenal website, an Arsenal podcast, that is what we are focusing on. One of the stories that's been doing the rounds um, is is player cuts or, or player wage cuts, um, and we we understand that uh, the majority of the squad have agreed a twelve and a half percent pay cut. The contractual side of that uh, has still to be put in place, I think, although they were hoping to have those uh, signatures in order to push through those cuts. Um, this month so they could start straight away. What does that save Arsenal on a monthly basis? And would it be reasonable to suggest that if things continue the way we think they are going to continue with no football, or certainly uh, if football comes back, it's going to be behind closed doors at some point in the future, that this might just be the first round of cuts for uh, for players and, and the wage bill? The The Arsenal wage bill all up, is is about twenty million pounds a month, and that covers something like seven hundred and twenty five employees, and and about a thousand casual match day staff. Mm. We we estimate that 
and this is a conservative estimate, that 80% of that wage spend goes to the first team squad. We have we have 72 registered professional players, so that will be from 18 upwards. But we're estimating of our 27-player first team squad, they take 80% of that. So that's about 16 million. The protracted negotiations around wage cuts or deferrals or whatever you want to call it, and this is in conjunction with the the executive team, which which encapsulates 14 people from Vinay to Rao to Mark Ganella, the the legal team. Um, all told, they're taking a 30% for 12 months. The the players are some of the, the majority of players are doing 12 and 12.5%. Of that 20 million wage spend a month, that will save two and a half million pounds. So I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's it's the the tiniest of haircuts you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And the and the um, uh, the the aggravation or the um, angst it will have caused by bringing your first team manager in there to negotiate with players about trying to do the right thing. I mean, is is it? Well, I don't say is it worth it, but you know, we would have to do another one. And and if you're sitting there and you've got twelve months of your contract to go, and you're potentially going to go to another club, you're thinking, I'm a millionaire, and this club is owned by a billionaire. Mm. Who who who's doing who the favour? Who's subsidising who here? If we were community owned, if it was a you know trust run club or something like that, and you can see exactly where it's going. I can see a lot, lot more of the moral persuasion for it, but you know, it's the right thing to do. But does it make? Does it move the dial at all? Mm. It's it's very minor, Andrew, and I'm, I'm sure it will have caused a lot of um, um, angst and, and relationship damage. If if anyone cares about that, yeah. I mean, look, we're being told that it's all been done, you know, quite uh, amicably and everything else, but. You know, I think I made the point a few times that, you know, when you're talking money to anybody, whether, you know, whatever business you're in, whatever your job is, if someone comes in and starts, you know, putting pressure on you to take a pay cut, whether you can see a good reason for it or not, it still doesn't, um, it's not the best news you can get. And it might color your view of the company or color your view of colleagues or, or anything else. But, you know, that's something that might come out in the wash and hopefully, fingers crossed, the, you know, the, the, the fallout from that isn't um, too damaging because, you know, uh, at some point we need to get everybody back together and to be a team and to be united and harmonious and all of those things on the pitch because those uh, those things make a difference. But it brings us nicely to uh, KSE and Stan Kroenke. Uh, and one of the other stories that's been doing the rounds is, is this um, cash, uh, I have this in inverted commas, a cash injection uh, from KSE, what, what's your understanding of of exactly what that is? Because it seems counterintuitive that if Stan Kroenke is coming and saying, "Look, here's a load of money for Arsenal to use to help us through this difficult period," you know, at the same time, you don't take two and a half million pounds off the wage bill every month if the guy is coming in and giving you a load of money to to, to tide things over. So, what is your understanding of what this? cash injection if you like from kse actually is well i think i think first of all i i like your inverted commas but i think you need to to move the the opening ones slightly to the left because there, there was a word in front of cash injection which is in my inverted commas which said massive 
cash injection. Right. <laughs> and, and and the journalists who reported that it's it's not been it's not been corrected by the club or anything. Why should they correct it? Um, no, there's been no massive cash injection. Um, the first thing the first thing Arsenal will have done is they've got an overdraft facility. It's it's less than than twelve months. It's never been utilised. It's fifty million pounds. So that's available to draw. All the conditions precedent to use that facility is available. So the first port of call, once your cash is, is exhausted, is to use that debt facility of £50 million. That can tie things over for, uh, for two months. What I do suspect that the KSE have done, they would have been brought into discussions with various creditors of Arsenal, and, and the only creditors are the bondholders, the debenture holders who are who are you know five or six thousand individuals who own the, the, the debentures for the for the stadium and and Barclays is is to confirm that he stands behind the business plan and what what's going on. Mm. Um, and how how we've done that. Has he provided a guarantee to these people? Well at the moment, as far as I'm aware, we haven't gone to, to the people to relax any of the covenants to to borrow additional money etc etc but i'm absolutely sure that i mean this is an asset that the cronky less than two years ago spent an extra 550 million pounds so he can get 100 percent control of it mm. so the so the thought that he would do anything or not do anything which would severely impair the value of his one of his trophy assets is, is hard to contemplate. So I'm absolutely sure that he is there, KSE is there in the background to do whatever is needed, but it's too early to say it's massive cash injection. If we go all next season with no games with with um, spectators and we're looking at a, a 90 million reduction just in gate receipts and we're fully maxed out on our loans, then he may have to step in. And there's several ways he can do that. He himself can put a put a loan into the club. Mm-hmm. I mean, all all the Chelsea money is is owed to Abramovich. It's not equity. It's not turned into shares in the club. It's a it's a repayable loan. So he could make a loan facility available. He could permanently put money in by increasing the capital. Highly unlikely, but he could say here's an extra hundred million, recapitalize and get on with that. Or he could bring in a third party investor. He could say, you know, do I do I need a hundred percent? Mm. The Glazers don't have 100% of United, they have about 90%. Could I bring someone in for, for 10%? It's hard to imagine why anyone would want 10% because it gives you nothing in terms of yeah. control or voting. I mean, look look at the way Usmanov was, was frozen out for all those years. So so there are things, but absolutely, this is this is a key, key asset. And I, I hate to talk about Arsenal as an asset and all this type of stuff because it, it's so emotional to so many people. But he will be looking at. We know he's an financial investor, so he will be doing whatever is needed to keep the ship afloat. It says something, though, doesn't it, about the the way that football is run? And look, nobody could have predicted this kind of scenario. I don't think the the prospect of a, a worldwide pandemic, which is seeing thousands of people die and everything shut down, was in anybody's mind. You know, beyond scriptwriters for movies and things like that, it just you know. Uh, it, it just seemed impossible for something like that to happen. So it's very difficult to future plan for it or, or anything like it. But you're talking about how if Arsenal run through their cash reserves, which could happen if we go through the summer uh, without season ticket income, 
potentially, uh, you know, without some of the broadcast revenue, because I guess that's an issue between the clubs and, and the, the rights holders, that if the games don't take place for some reason, there might be some debate or, or discussion over what money is to be paid. And then we dip into the fine, uh, into the, the overdraft facility that you talk about of around 50 million pounds, which could, which could keep us going for around two months. Um, the, the, the finances in football are so precarious, and I know it's probably not uh, uh, unique to football. You know, cash flow and revenues and all those kind of things are, are, are operate that way with many businesses. But but a lot of football clubs, and not just Arsenal, could find themselves in real trouble very quickly. Absolutely, there's there's very very few immune to this. You you could probably take out the the one or two who are owned by country sovereign wealth fund so you can't see any um, any any material impact for someone like manchester city who are owned by by abu dhabi um i mean what abramovich will do with chelsea i mean everyone's got speculated about what what his plans i don't think he's seen seen the game this season and then just run it down the run it down the table run it down the divisions and and every every club is it's not hand to mouth, but there's there's no one sitting there immune from from what is 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 potentially a a massive shakeout here, Andrew. Well, I don't quite know what more we can say about this, other than it is going to be a massive financial challenge on top of all the other challenges that that this thing is is providing us with. Um, I mean, just finally, your, your thoughts on what it might mean for football for football club ownership for for fandom because we we've all grown with football over the last number of years from clubs which were i i guess essentially community based to being these big worldwide uh organizations supported by fans across the world and we know arsenal have a, an amazing fan base all over the world is it going to have an impact on on the game in terms of how it returns and what we might see football becoming as i i, I hate to say football as a product but that's kind of what it has been you know it's been sold everywhere to everyone for as high a price as possible and we've all played our part in that and everything else but but do you think that the far side of this it might be something that changes i think there's got to be change andrew i think i think if there is any silver lining in this i think it's going to be over the over the next few months and uh, when we watch games behind closed doors you'll see how anodyne that experience is and it will remind people that match-attending supporters, whether they be home or away fans, are an integral part in the overall product. Don't like the word product, but, yeah. but you know what you know what I mean. So, f- fans, if they can get organised, will have a very big say in in how things come back, because. Football without fans will be nothing. doesn't matter whether you've got 2,000 fans at Dulwich Hamlet or 60,000 fans at Arsenal, whatever. It's, it's the supporters that, that make make the whole thing. There's got to be a reality check around the percentage of your earnings which get paid out to players. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, do you think it could precipitate a, a salary cap in in football, which is something that seemed kind of unthinkable? Well, if you if we talk about the the Premier League 
uh, on its own. And it's difficult to do this because the Premier League 20 uh, is it's a global marketplace. But the, the way the ownership is going, it won't take long to have enough owners in there who are financial investors, <laughs> excuse mm. me, financial investors who would love to have a salary cap in there. They're absolutely begging for one to be put in place. But why would Man City go for a salary cap? If Newcastle get bought by the Saudis, why would they want a salary cap? They just want to, you know, this is what financial fair play was brought in to do. Mm. And, and and it's likely that financial fair play <clears throat> will be relaxed in the in, in the coming periods to allow people to, to right-size their businesses or, or whatever. So some sort of reality around wages. I mean, I think the transfer market and figures we've seen in the past for, you know, good but averagey type of players will absolutely get get rebased mm-hmm. um that there may still be one or two you know stellar type of contracts for the the very very top players but the number of clubs who will be able to participate in that will, will severely be reduced um and and it's going to take a time and when we do get back what's the economic impact on on people's ability to pay for their subscriptions to go to the pay for the season tickets etc etc and then are people comfortable to go back into a stadium where there's there's yeah. almost 60,000 people liverpool have put their um their expansion from 54,000 to 61,000 on hold not because they're worried about there won't be the people i mean that's the situation of of where we are and and construction and everything else but and how, how long will it be before people are comfortable to come back into that very um, intimate environment of a stadium when we're not worried about yeah the, yeah exactly. the contact with people yeah and just uh, finally 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 you you mentioned transfers there and I think that's one of the things that you know over the years we've all we get to summertime and everyone's like transfers what are we going to do how much are we going to spend you know who's going here who's going there. You know, when you outline the figures that you've outlined and the potential financial impact of this, and again, this is sort of just prediction. It's not necessarily saying this is fact, but if this happens, then you know, uh, you know, the, the impact will be quite severe on Arsenal. The idea that that as a football club, um, we are going to go out and spend a lot of money on new players seems absolutely absurd. In which period are we talking about? Summer, this, summer twenty, or, well, or summer, ever again? Yeah, well, maybe ever again. But but certainly the next time, whatever the transfer market is, is open. If Arsenal are are looking to KSE to take overdrafts to keep things running, it doesn't seem likely that we're going to go out and spend the equivalent of that overdraft on a centre half. It's it's somehow um, um, defeat defeats the mantra of being self self sustaining, and unless there is some sort of miraculous change in the thought process of the financial investor who is our owner then then you're absolutely spot on it it, it won't be happening mm. we we will have to manage with what we've got which might be a great thing for the youth coming through that's it and and, and if you if you've got great belief in in some of those players we want to see more of maybe the investment we've had in that academy for you know it, it's had several sort of iterations but if if we believe there's a decent stock in there then maybe that's that's the way you'd have to rebuild. 
Mm. Well, look, I think everybody is going to have to to find new and inventive ways of squad building. And whether that's, you know, building from youth, whether that's extending the contracts of players that perhaps you might have had to or uh, wanted to sell uh, simply because it's easier to do that uh, or or other ways, we'll have to wait and see. But look, um, Nigel, thank you very much indeed for uh, for your time and thank you for going through those figures with us. Uh, you know, it is a, a reality that, that Arsenal and football and many all football clubs, professional football clubs, are going to have to deal with this. So we'll wait and see what happens. But Nigel, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thanks, Andrew. The full report is available to members of the Arsenal Supporters Trust. You can find their website at arsenaltrust.org. That is arsenaltrust.org. And this week they did uh, a Q&A with uh, David Ornstein of The Athletic. They usually do these meetings, you know, in uh, in person. Obviously, there's a, a crowd and a guest and what have you. But because of what's going on, this was done digitally over Zoom. But if you want to find out more about that, if you want to find out more about the finances and the rest, uh, just visit the website arsenaltrust.org Selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right, joining me now on the Arsecast, I'm delighted to welcome somebody whose voice I'm sure many of you will know uh, from his work with Arsenal Media, hosting the Arsenal World Show and Arsenal Podcasts, but also pitch side at Arsenal. It's Nigel Mitchell. Hello, Nigel. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? How are you? Uh, how are you getting on? Well, I'm all right. It's, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not. I'm not doing any work at the moment, mm. <laughs> so um, it's a bit quiet. But um, yeah, getting through, getting through everything, and I can't. I can't complain, really. You know, we're we're just being asked to stay at home and uh, stay safe, aren't we? Really, and, and I'm very fortunate. I live near some parks, so I can go and get my daily exercise in a nice environment, and then I just sort of uh, spend the rest of the day sort of reading or watching um, TV and stuff like that, and then sure. you know. Then the next day begins. Yes. So uh, hopefully we'll be back to some to some football very soon. And it's it's nice to catch up with some old matches. I notice Arsenal have been putting out the Arsenal Reloaded shows, so they're really yeah. nice to watch on a on a Wednesday afternoon or now Wednesday evening, um, just to get some football action. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like everyone, I'm I'm really missing it. You know. For sure. I mean, look, your your involvement with the club and with the the match day experience is obviously is quite unique, and we'll come to that because I'm I'm curious about. 
you know, the work itself and, and everything else. But, you know, as somebody uh, who has a background in radio myself, I'm always really interested in talking to people who, who, do, who do radio and who have done radio. And your bio says, you know, you're a, a TV presenter, radio presenter and voiceover artist. And, you know, yeah. I do a bit of that myself. So, uh, you know, how, how did you um, decide that this was the business to be in? Was it one thing in particular that drove you to it? Was it a, a need to perform or, or how did you end up being a TV radio presenter? Well, from from a very early age, uh, I was actually six years old. And I remember exactly the moment because um, we were on our way to school one day and um, my mum had just passed her driving test so that she could take us to school. And she she hated any noise in the car. She was a very nervous driver. And so she said, no talking, no radio, nothing. So we used to drive to school in absolute silence. And then one day, I can't remember why, my dad ended up taking us instead. And um, they turned the, turned the car on and the radio came on. And I went, oh, why have you got that on? And he went, oh, well, we, we were listening to, to Kid yesterday because he's just started, uh, he's just moved from Radio 1 to, to Capital. Now, Kid is obviously David Jensen. You yeah. may remember um, legendary DJ sure. uh, from Radio 1 and, and, and Capital and many other stations down the years. And uh, mum and dad were very good friends with him. They actually used to live across the road from us, um, oh, wow. Kid and Gudrun Jensen. And I went to school with their kids um, down the years. And so mum and dad were very good friends. They wanted to hear what he was like on Capital because it was a big change for him moving from Radio 1. And so um, anyway, dad went, well, I'll, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll turn it off. And I went, no, no, leave it on, leave it on. And uh, it was this guy called Graham Dean who was doing the breakfast show on Capital back then. And uh, that was the first time I sort of remember hearing the radio. And in that 20 minutes on the way to school that morning back in, I think, in 1986 or something like that, um, I kind of went, wow, this guy's get. hang on a minute, this guy's getting paid to play records <laughs> and and talk um th- i want to do that so i remember sort of uh, that night stealing a load of my mom and dad's cassettes and their cassette recorder mm. and going upstairs to my bedroom and pretending i was graham dean on capital radio um and uh, my love of it just grew from that and then after a few a few months i kind of thought well i can be nigel mitchell now okay, so yeah. uh, i sort of started being myself and um just used to practice used to really annoy my family sort of doing shows from my bedroom to the whole house you know going listen to this um and recording <laughs> jingles off the radio and, and things like that and, and pretending to be uh, pretending to be on air really so i was sort of practicing from the age of six and i just thought this is an amazing an amazing thing to do and yeah. i was very lucky th- through through kid i got to go up to capital a few times when it was at the houston tower and um, meet some legendary djs and that sort of made me go wow this is this is just amazing yeah. so whilst all my friends were sort of going well i want to be a doctor you know the, the teacher used to go around at school going what does everyone want to be when they grow up and everyone would be i want to be a lawyer i want to be a doctor i want to do this and i was like i want to be a dj and everyone used to laugh <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the but, thing i mean people uh, you know I, I know people have their passions but i think there's something quite unique about radio that if if it gets its hooks into you and if it if yeah. you become obsessed with it it's a really difficult thing not to or to get rid of you know you're sort of really focused on on doing it this is what i want to do and it was all i wanted to do as as a as a kid as a teenager anyway it was either be a footballer or it was be a radio dj and uh well you know beer and stuff got in the way of my football um <laughs> which isn't to say that i ever thought i was going to be you know turning out at ivory or anything like that but but you know the radio thing has has always been an obsession it it, it remains yeah. that to this day like do you ever watch um 
Do you ever watch a, a a TV show or a movie and they have a radio studio in and you go, hey, wait a minute, that's the wrong microphone. Or yeah. why aren't well, you wearing, wearing headphones? headphones? Why aren't you wearing <laughs> headphones? This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> some of the I mean I'm, I'm a big Alan Partridge fan yeah and uh, that used to wind me up a lot because some of the when he started doing his series where he was in the radio studio some of the links he'd be wearing headphones and some of the links he wouldn't be wearing headphones <laughs> and I'd be going well he'd be getting terrible feedback yeah so who were who were the DJs on Capitol at, at the time that that sort of caught your imagination um so it would have been um well Graham, Graham Dean initially and, and uh, David Jensen because of obviously mm. the connection with mum and dad and then it was at the time of Pat Sharp and Mick Brown um, Chris Tarrant as well um, I love listening to his breakfast show uh, mm. when he took over doing that show and um, yeah those guys just sort of um, you know, it, it just sounded capital back then. Just sounded huge. You know, it was the station to listen to in London. It owned. I always felt to me like it owned London. If there was something going on, Capital owned it. Mm. You know, and it just had a massive sound. Uh, and they used to. You know, I was. I always remember the first time I went up to um, to the Euston Tower and. Um, I'd listened to Neil, you know, Neil Fox had this, Dr. Fox, as yeah. he was known, had had the jukebox and the jingle one. This is Earth's most powerful instant music machine. And obviously nowadays you just type into iTunes or whatever or Spotify yeah. and the tune comes up immediately. But back then you had to go into a record library. If someone said, oh, can you, have, can you play this record? Someone had run down to the record library, go and get it, bring it back up and stick it on. Yeah. But he had this jukebox, this most amazing instant music machine i was like how how on earth does this work and i never forget when i walked into that studio and i saw a detached keyboard and a part of me just died i was like oh <laughs> it's like it's pre-prepared somehow yeah that was pretty and it said on it it did actually say dr fox's new improved jukebox or something and it was a detached keyboard because on air the beauty of radio the theater of the mind he used to just bash the keys yeah. and you think oh my god he's he's getting this He's getting this song, which, of course, nowadays is totally possible. Yeah. Not back then, but, though, when you were dealing not, with seven-inch singles and, and, and also, carts. You know, they always used to say, we're broadcasting from the top of the Euston Tower or the Mighty Power Tower. And you'd go up this amazing staircase in the Euston Tower, and you'd only go to, to the first floor. <laughs> <laughs> so you go hang on a minute i'm sure i haven't gone up 30 30 flights and it was all on the first floor but they used to that theater yeah the, was amazing but that's you know? it's the the thing about the you know it's it's completely different nowadays because radio stations all have tv cameras in them or most yeah. of them anyway uh, and radio stations have websites uh you know with pictures of all the presenters and the schedules mm. and everything else but back in the day you know, you would hear a voice on the radio, and unless that person was a very famous DJ and appearing on Top of the Pops, you really had no way of knowing what they looked like. So mm. you'd sort of you'd sort of create this image of the voice, the person behind the voice, and of course, DJ voices being DJ voices, as you yeah. know, you're sort of thinking, well, this is a tall, strapping man with, you know, long, flowing locks. And then when eventually you might see a picture of them three years later, it's like this small, bald guy wearing glasses. You're like, what the fuck? What the, what the, exactly, yeah. what the hell? So I, re yeah. I remember that because that, 
that Sunday, I went up to uh, the network chart, and I've still got the script, the Nescafe network chart in 1988, mm. the day that Kylie Minogue and I Should Be So Lucky was number one. What um, a time and, to be alive. Uh, I remember sitting in the studio going, this is amazing. And I turned to my dad and went, I know the number one before anyone. This is incredible. And I've still got that script in, in my little studio at home. Um, and um, that was the day that I'd, I met Mick and Pat. Um, for the first time. Mm. And obviously, I knew what Pat Sharp looked like because of Funhouse. So Funhouse, I think, had been around for a little while. So, you know, I knew what Pat looked like. had no idea what Mick, Mick looked like. And I remember meeting Mick Brown and going, oh, uh, what? Because <laughs> the voice just didn't match, you know, yeah. the image I had in, in my in my head. But, uh, yeah, I love radio. And I, still, I, sort of, I fell out of love with it a little while ago. Um, but I'm slowly getting, I'm, you know, I miss it now. I haven't done it for a few years. What was and, it, the sort um, of formulaic nature yeah, of it? Yeah, and I, I've been very fortunate. The kind of radio I've been allowed to do down the years has, uh, you know, it, I, I've been allowed a lot of freedom. And I think that's through my TV background. And then the way I got into uh, radio was via TV, via Disney. Um, and uh, a station called Capital Disney, which was sort of, you know, Capital and Disney came together to create this mm. um, children's radio station. And um, I was very much allowed freedom. I could make my own jingles. I could make my own features. I could, I mean, there was a playlist, but if I thought that song, a certain song fitted better at the top of the hour, I was allowed to change it. So I was very much programming and producing my own show. Mm. And um, it was great. You know, it was, it was brilliant. And it was at Capital. I mean, they'd moved to Leicester Square by that point, but there was still those amazing faces around and you know you'd walk you'd walk into the studio and um down and then people like you know uh greg edwards who was this legendary soul dj would walk past and you go oh it's greg edwards mm. and simon bates who was on classic at that time and um you know all these people all these legends who you've grown up listening to would walk past your studio um and you could go and talk to them and you're just like wow this is this is amazing and so i was always allowed that freedom and, and, and our boss at capital disney was just amazing um to, to give us that and then when that finally uh, got G-capped, uh, when G- uh, GWR and Capital came together, they, they closed a load of the stations down, and that, mm. that sadly was one of them. Um, and, and our boss moved it over to the BBC in, in Cambridgeshire, and he said, oh, would you like to cover a couple of shows? And, and I ended up um, just doing some cover shifts there for a couple of years, uh, which was, again, uh, you know, it allowed us a, a certain amount of freedom, which was brilliant. Um, and then, so I'd never really done format radio because I'd always been allowed that yeah. I was always trusted, you know, and then an opportunity at heart came up and uh, it was, I mean, it was just, it was a totally different ball game. And I take my hat off to anyone who can do that form of radio because it is a, it's a real skill to be able to condense all that information into five seconds. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, you're I, basically sort of told what to play. You're told what to say, when to say it, when to play it, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and, you know, quite often you're playing music, um, you know, if you're into radio, I think you do have an interest in music and musical taste varies. But, you know, quite often you're playing music that you wouldn't necessarily pick yourself. That'd be fair to say, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I and also um, with the format as it was at the time at heart, I'm not sure what it's like nowadays. They were lovely to, you know, they were lovely people. The, the guy running it was, was lovely. It was just very formatted. Um, but also because they just uh, started networking everything from Leicester Square, um, the show that I, the shows that I were doing were across the UK, um, but that meant that you had to pre-record a lot of your links. So you had to say, "This is London's heart," or "This is Birmingham's heart," "This is right. Scotland's heart," and so in the end, you you weren't doing much live radio. Everything was 
pre-recorded and you were just playing out your links to make it sound live and i was sort of standing there going i don't this isn't what mm. kind of I, I this isn't like radio how i i used to do i love doing radio but this isn't the kind of radio that su- suited me and i i you know it, wor- it obviously works it's you know but uh, it just was something that didn't necessarily yeah. suit the what i was so i sort of fell out of love with it a little bit as everything got more formulaic yeah um the live element thought, is is bbc just... might be the way 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 forward but you know and then i again i got taken off in a completely different direction um so uh yeah Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. Who knows? You know, Arsenal Radio might, uh, you know, start up as the club have to think of new ways to to generate content and revenue and who knows. Uh, but, yeah. but uh, you know, let's let's talk a little bit of football then. And you have a, a fantastic job um, oh, working yeah. uh, with the club, doing a lot of the content. And, you know, um, as I mentioned to you, sort of all fair um professional broadcasters and people who do the kind of work that you do might get a gig at a football club somewhere and it may not necessarily be the football club that that they support but you know they do a professional job and they're they're there to to host the shows and and everything else but you are you are an arsenal fan at the heart of it so Mm. that must make it even more exciting yeah, and I, I pinch myself all the time. A lot of people on Twitter always send me messages going, "Do you, you, do you know you've got the best job in the world?" And I, you don't need to tell me that. I, you know, I, <laughs> I know. I, I regularly pinch myself, and I have a floor manager who I work with on on a match day, and before every kickoff. We sit in those seats and we just go to look around, take it all in, take it all in and just pinch yourself and really appreciate how, how fortunate we are to, to be sat here watching this this team and, and in this stadium and then mm. what we get to do at pre-match and half-time. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering that at the moment because I do remember that that most recent game um, and there was so much uncertainty about would that be the last game this season? Would it not be the last game this season? And sort of I keep flashing back to, to that day um, and that half-time interview with with uh, Robert Perez, who is one of my favourite players to interview, he's just yeah. such a lovely, lovely man and such a legend. Always gets an amazing reception. And um, I kind of think back to that half-time and go, "Wow, is that the is that the last one we'll do this yeah. season?" I don't know. You know, who knows? So, so tell me, what's what's like um, a typical match day at home? You know, where you're. Uh, you know, coming to the stadium. I mean, how much preparation goes in during the week to what's going to happen at at halftime? And and what's the day like itself? um, Well, we get a a running order and um, a a rough script, I would say, sent through uh, either two days before or the day before. Now, um, that's in terms of what uh, VTs we're going to show, which highlights packages we're going to show. Um, and um, any presentations that we might have, Player of the Month presentations, who is going to be joining us, who's the competition winner for that Player of the Month, if there's an Arsenal in the Community presentation. So all of that is listed. I mean, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it is a huge operation, uh, but the trick is to make it feel as though it's just sort of just happening, you know. But yeah. um, the, the amount of work and the prep that goes into the, the, the running order and the scripts and stuff like that is incredible. So normally I get, I get to know who I'm interviewing maybe about two or three weeks ahead of the game. And then I will research that person and come up with what I think are maybe 10, uh, between eight and 10 questions that I think as a fan, what would I like to hear about from this legend? Um, and then I submit the questions to Arsenal and then they send them off to uh, the player or the player's agent and all that kind of stuff just so that everything gets approved. 
the, the difference about the job that I do in terms of interviewing is I'm not trying to make headlines. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I, yeah. I, it's all about giving the, the legend the best experience on a match day. They're, they're an invited guest. They get to watch the match in the director's box. So as a little bonus, they come, come out and uh, wave to the crowd at halftime. We do a little chat and, and talk about their, their happy memories. So it's a really nice, for me, I'm, you know, it, it's, it's lovely to go down memory lane with them. And, um, but also ha- quite hard because you've got to, you've got to, with some of them, they've had the most amazing careers and you've got three and a half minutes to cover it. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because, you know, obviously I've seen you do it, uh, you know, at the stadium many times. Mm. And it's a weird, it must be a really weird dynamic because normally if you're standing there and you've got a microphone and you're, you're uh, about to interview somebody, you, you expect in, in any other sort of context, all the attention to be on you and your guest. So people might fall silent if you're doing it in a conference room, for example. You know, people are going to fall silent. But you have this really difficult dynamic to deal with, which is that in a crowd of 60,000 people, maybe 30,000 or 40,000 of them have buggered off at halftime to, like, have a pint or go to the bathroom or to get a pie or just to get a bit of fresh air or to hang out in the concourse or whatever it is. And then other people are there and they're going, wow, look, half the people are gone. I'll see if my if my Twitter is working now. So I'll check my Twitter. And they're checking and they're chatting to their mates and everything else. So it must be quite a, a, a challenging environment in which to do the interviews because, you know, there are going to be people who are obviously interested and interested in the guest and in what you're saying but you're also having to deal with this i don't mean to say like disinterest but there's like a a big part of it is people who aren't necessarily paying attention the way that they would were it happening anywhere else in any other environment or, or theater or whatever it might be yeah i i would agree with that and i think the um the thing is it's uh as as you will know from a, a ra- using a radio analogy, um, and I always think of this when I'm presenting at Emirates, and, and people often say, "Are you? Um, do you ever get nervous about presenting in front of sixty thousand people?" And I say, "Well, um, well, firstly, no, because they're not there to see me. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so I'm I'm the the, the kind of the, the lucky guy who who is the link man between me uh, between them and their legend." or their halftime guest. So I'm just sort of the, the, the guy who links those two things together. You haven't paid your money to come and see me. So the pressure's off in some ways. Mm. Um, but also, you know, in radio, we were always taught there is only ever one person watching. So you've got to make a connection with one person. Now, in a crowd of 60,000 people, if you can connect with one person, 30,000 people, 60,000 people, then that's, you know, someone somewhere is paying attention. And I think that's, that's very, so I always treat it like that. When I'm looking down the camera, I always try and use words like you um, and things like to make it sort of as though yeah. it's a personal thing rather than every, hello, everyone. You know, I always try and say hello to you so that it's trying to make that connection one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then people can dip in and dip out. And I, I think depending on who the legend is or who the guest is at halftime, um, it's, it's, it's some people might not know of that person because it might, that person might have played before they took an interest in Arsenal. Um, and some people might go, oh, I'm not interested in that. That's why I'm going to go and see my mates. But I have had some feedback before where people have said, you know, I never heard of that player, but it was, it was really nice to hear about football in the 1950s and 1960s. Sure. And so we stayed and watched that. So I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where, 
as you know, Andrew, working in this game, you can't please everyone. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, and I've learned that over 25 years of doing this job. Not everyone's going to enjoy what you do. Yeah. Those are the facts, you know, and especially now with Twitter, people people can pretty <laughs> can quickly tell you. Tell you. <laughs> um, so you just have to go, do you know what? I can't, I can't please everyone. Uh, if someone out there has enjoyed what we've done at halftime, that's great. Yeah. And, um, and I have to say, over the years, uh, I love working with, with um, Arsenal fans. They, they've been very, very good to me. And, um, you know, I, the feedback is, is always, if I ask a question, nine times out of ten, we get a cheer or, you know, in response to it. And especially with the junior gunner penalties, with some of the stuff that's happened with those oh, yeah. over the years, some <laughs> of the junior gunners have created some great comedy moments and the responses have been brilliant from the yeah. crowd. So, you know, that's, it's really nice when those moments happen. One of my favourite moments was um, when we had Dennis Bergkamp. And his, uh, his statue had just been unveiled outside Emirates Stadium. And that was, I think, the one occasion where no one left yeah, to get yeah, a drink yeah. at halftime. And you could hear a pin drop inside Emirates Stadium. And that was, that was pretty spine-tingling stuff. And everyone was hanging off every word Dennis said. And I'll tell you a funny story about that because, obviously, we submit the questions make sure Dennis is happy, make sure the club's happy, make sure Dennis's agent and Ajax. And so all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, all good to go. And so I get to the last question that's been um, approved by everyone. And then Dennis goes, I think I know what the next question is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh God, there isn't a next question. Um, so um, I, I know what he's thinking I'm going to ask, but obviously because I think he's just started at Ajax or something like that, yeah. I thought, we don't want we don't want to go there and rock any boats. So I thought he he thinks I'm going to ask, would he ever come back to Arsenal? Now there's so many people who might be angry if I ask that question. So I thought, but it's the fans would love to hear him say that. So I'm stalling, I'm stalling, I'm stalling, and he's going, I think I know what the next question is going to be. <laughs> and I went, oh, shall I ask the next question? At which point. 60,000 people go, yes, you know. Um, and so I said, well, I don't think I need to ask the next question, Dennis, but I think you might have an answer to it. At which point he said, of course, I'd love to come back to Arsenal. One day. <laughs> and, then, and then it got a really big cheer. It was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And afterwards I thought, you know what, if anyone ever says you shouldn't have asked him that question, I can say, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I, didn't. I might have led him down the, down the path towards the answer, but I, I never asked it. How... Yeah. how um, I mean, sometimes the first half doesn't quite go as well as we might like, right? Yeah. Does that present um, a challenge to you in terms of um, what you do? Because you've got to come out and you've got to be upbeat and you're obviously trying to, uh, you know, trying to keep things as, as professional and on an even keel as possible. But, you know, mm. sometimes the mood within the stadium might not be that great. Is that something that you kind of have to just shove to the back of your mind and just do it the way you would normally do it? Uh, I always will try my, t I will adjust my tone accordingly, I think, because the last, as a, as a fan, the last thing I would want um, is, you know, someone coming out half time, pretending everything's all right, going, hey, it's time for junior gunner penalties, you know. <laughs> um, so I try and adjust my tone. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened that often at Emirates, you know, and when we have been one nil down or, um, you know, not playing badly, sometimes we will just score before half time and I'm sitting, you know, crouching down next to the fourth official and I'm just going, oh, that's great. That changes everything. You know, mm. um, that makes life a lot easier for me at halftime because everyone's upbeat. But on the odd occasion where 
where we have been one nil down at half time and we haven't been playing uh, as well as uh, we could uh, could have been playing then yeah you, i think you just have to sort of come out and gauge your tone slightly so in the half time score announcement i try and do that quite straight mm-hmm. um and we have a we have a rule. I'm probably giving away trade secrets now, but we it, we will never announce the score at half time if we are losing. So we will only sure. announce the score at half time if we're winning or drawing. And so my half time mic check, as it's called, uh, I will um, say the score at Emirates is whatever it is, yeah. and then give a little trail for who we've got coming up at half time. And if we're losing, we won't ever say that. We'll just do the trail. Um, because you don't, you know, people know what the score is, and so you kind of don't sure. want to. But it's, so you, you don't want to say that, um, and then you just go into the interview and hope that that sort of takes people's mind off things for for a little while. And sometimes that's happened, you know. Um, again, we're not, we, we can't do anything about what's happening on the pitch. So yeah, um, it's it's one of those things that the, the what we do at halftime is there. And again, if you want to engage with it, then it's there for you to engage with. And we've had a, a couple of really nice moments with the junior gunner penalties where we have been sort of, you know, losing at half time. And, and some, a junior gunner has done something. And it's almost the perfect way to break the ice, really, because then everyone gets behind the junior gunner. They cheer and, mm. you know, it's, uh, that's a, a lovely moment. And then, we, then I always sort of say, well, fingers crossed for, for uh, we can turn it around in the second half. And then the second half begins. And, uh, and then I don't have to worry after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your job is done. Yeah, um, job is done. But I hope, I hope that sort of yeah. comes. I always try and gauge the mood. And um, I'm very conscious of that because, I, you know, I'm a fan and I feel... I, I feel what everyone else is feeling and I want us to, to win all the time. I want us to be doing well all the time. And yes, my life is a lot easier when we're winning. Um, mm. And, um, yeah, you know, I, know, I try and, I try and gauge the mood slightly, but I, I would like to think that that, that comes across and that I don't, they don't just go, Oh, there's that, there's that Wally going out and sure. doing junior gun of penalties at <laughs> half time, pretending everything's all right. You know? I, I know you said you're not out to make headlines, right? And, and clearly when you have the access that you have to people within the club, you know, the interviews that you can do for the, the club channels and the podcasts and the TV shows and everything else, you know, it, it's great to be able to, to talk to, to the people involved because they're people that any one of us would love to sit down and interview. But I think, you know, let's say if I were to do an interview with somebody and you were to do an interview with somebody, if I'm doing it for my, you know, independent channel and you're doing it for the official uh, club uh, outlets, whatever, the tone or the, the, it'd be slightly different, you know, which isn't to say I'm going to try and nail somebody or anything like that. But sometimes, you know, there, there are difficult questions that you can't avoid, I'm sure, as, as somebody who's mm. doing uh, interviews about, let's say, a match or in- interviews about a period in, in history or a, an incident with a player. You know, is it sometimes difficult to, to, to ask the question in the right way, if that's the best way to put it? Because, uh, you know... Um, it must be hard at times to try and find the exact right phrasing where you're you're dealing with an issue that needs an answer, but you've got to be so, sort of diplomatic because of the way or because of where it's going at, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't I with the stuff I do for the club, really, I don't have to I'm not really put in that position that often. I don't do post-match interviews. 
And um, when I first started, you know, at the club, my my role has changed so much over the years, and Arsenal have given me so many op- uh, incredible opportunities to to re- to do what I'm doing now. Um, but that was more when I first started. I was covering press conferences and um, doing uh, doing those kind of post match interviews. And so in those, it, it, I think you have to ask the questions in those um, instances, and you do have to think carefully about uh, about your wording. Um, but nowadays, I you know it's more uh, with the legends. It's more of yeah. a, a reflection. Um, so you know you can talk about um, Lee Dixon scoring that amazing own goal um, <laughs> <laughs> without worrying that he's going to get angry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? um, so, yeah. Enough uh, time has passed to be able to deal with that one. Just, just a yeah, couple of actually, decades. It's a funny, funny <laughs> thing to talk about. Or Perry Groves wearing ridiculously tight shorts back in the, you know back in the eighties. Sure. Um, so um, yeah, and that's the aspect of the job I really I really enjoy because I'm I'm rarely put in that in that position and it's not expected of me to, to, to ask those questions. And so that's, I, I really enjoy that because I'm, I'm not a confrontational person anyway. And, um, you know, I, I, I love that aspect of the job that I can where where a lot of negativity. I mean, a lot, a lot of sport questioning is negative, isn't it? You know, it's well, why did that go wrong? Why did that go wrong? And so it's nice that I, I feel lucky that I'm able to concentrate on the positive aspects of someone's career and um, try and lift the mood slightly. And I hope, hopefully, that's, you know, that's what yeah. comes across. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when, when Arsenal win 2-0, and this is sort of an accusation that you see thrown around quite a lot in terms of, you know, fan media, where, you know, maybe there's more discussion or more debate after, uh, you know, a, a defeat. And I think that's natural because there's usually more to talk about because you're asking mm. what went wrong, why did this happen, why didn't this happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas a routine two nil win, you're sort of going, well, okay, that's what I expected. Let's move on and play the next game. So I think by by its very nature, you know, poor results or or, or controversial results, if that's the right way to put it, or, or results which have a lot going on, spark a lot more a lot more debate. Um, yeah. And it's always the defenders or the uh, the goalkeepers. They always have a little joke about that. It's like if if we're winning, they don't want to talk to us. But if we're losing, <laughs> we're, the, we're, we're the people who get dragged out to do the the, the post match interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who down the years have been your your favourite interviewees? Uh, whether that's you know pitch side or in some of the programs that you've done well Dennis I mean I always say Dennis for that moment because that was such an incredible moment with everyone hanging off his every word and you know with what Dennis had done for the club and his stature as an Arsenal legend it's always that it's always that question who's who's the best Arsenal player Thierry Henry Dennis Bergkamp you know it's always the one isn't it so who's so Andrew who's the best Arsenal player Thierry Henry or Dennis Bergkamp go um Dennis Bergkamp. Okay. <laughs> Why? Uh, I, I, look, I love Thierry Henry, and, and he obviously was an amazing player, but I just sort of liked the the combination of, of technique, of longevity, mm. with that little edge of nastiness that Dennis had, which kind of resonates with me um (laughs) just because you know i i i like i kind of like that in a player you know and particularly when it's one as as you know someone who's look there are players who've been very physical who you wouldn't necessarily say are the the game's most um intelligent players but Bergkamp clearly was so that combination i think just 
just does something for me. So yeah, and uh, Thierry, I think, would say, "Well, uh, I wouldn't have scored as many goals if I hadn't the Dennis." Yeah. You know, yeah, and um, I Wrighty feels like that as well. But um, so Dennis, I, I really love that moment. That's the only time I've worked with Dennis over the years. Actually, was that was that um, moment because obviously he's been elsewhere. Sure. Um, I get I, 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 one of the jobs that um, the club have given me in recent years, which I absolutely love, are the um, the VIP um, experiences, the VIP legend experiences, and that's that involves Ray Parler, um, <laughs> Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, or right. David Seaman. Right, and uh, that's um, that's a tour of Emirates Stadium, and um, I I'm sort of the guy who goes around and does all the facts, and then um, throws a few questions at uh, the legend at various points on the tour, and the tour normally lasts about two and a half hours, and then we go up to the Diamond Club and um, have lunch up there, and then uh, each each fan gets time with the legend at their table, uh, so they can sign anything and have more photos and th- things like that, and I love those experiences because with the half-time interviews as I mentioned you get three and a half minutes maybe four minutes and to try and cover someone like David Seaman's career in four minutes I mean you spend two you spend a minute and a half talking about the the save against Sheffield United because David loves that save yeah 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 so once you've covered that you've got someone in your ear going right two more questions I haven't got a minute you know Um, whereas with the, the VIP experiences you we get to learn so much about the legends on those tours. And I just love what I love working with those guys. And every time we do one, we find out new stuff. Um, you know, David Seaman's still got his ponytail. Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, Where? Like in a drawer or on his head? Is it actually still <laughs> yeah, attached in a, to him? In yeah? a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> And that came. That was on one of the tours. We started getting talking about his ponytail, and how he ended up with his ponytail initially. And that's a great story in itself. Um, and do we have uh, to go then, on one of the legend stories to find that out? Well, I, you know, um, yeah. Come on, a legend. Well, okay. Where well, they'll start again? <laughs> well, we, we, come on, the David Seaman legends. Right, one day. He's he's brilliant, and he is such fun to work with. And on the last one we did, which was actually just the, the uh, I think the week before lockdown, um, was working with David on that Legends tour. I think it was the fourteenth of March or something like that. And I'd managed to find his school reports. And um, so where, where, when we where got to did the press you find conference room on the tour, we, I sort of said, right, David, it wasn't always rosy, though, was it? <laughs> and, um, you know, read a few school reports from uh, from back in the day where he said that if, if football doesn't work out, then we really worried about David and what's <laughs> going to happen to him. Well, lucky um, for him. And he, resp- he was brilliant with that. And, you know, Lee Dixon is great when we visit the TV studio on the tour because that's Lee's natural environment now. That's where he spends so much time. So the insight he can give to what happens um, as an analyst, don't call him a pundit, an analyst right. um, on, on TV with the earpiece and all that kind of stuff and how he's told to wind up Roy Keane all the time and how he helps Wrighty out because Wrighty doesn't have an earpiece. So Lee Dixon is Wrighty's kind of... He, basically, Lee Dixon is in control of Wrighty when you're watching them on ITV. That's the, that's the upshot of it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's brilliant. It's uh, I love those th- those those tours and to get time with those legends is is incredible. I've worked with Ray a lot over the years on the on the preseason tours as well. Sure. Um, so uh, that's always an adventure. <laughs> yes, I think that's fair to say. I saw Ray in in uh, America last summer, and yes, there were some stories. <laughs> that's fair to say. Well, look, Nigel, you know you're uh, well, you were, and I hope you will be soon again, living the dream in terms of your job 
job and what you're doing. Thank and hopefully you. we yeah. can, uh, hopefully we'll see you back pitch side very soon uh, because that will mean that things are on the uh, up and up for everybody. And I hope, uh, you know, clearly that that happens sooner rather than later, uh, even if our realistic view of that isn't um, quite as, as optimistic. But, yeah. you know. We'll see. I mean, as, yeah. as long as it's safe for everyone to be back and, yeah. you know, I, I, it's going to take a while. I think realistically it's going to take a while. I think the thing I'm trying to live in the present as much as we can and uh, just sort of go, do you know what? It's not happening at the moment and there's no point projecting forward too much because no one knows anything at the moment. Mm. So we just sort of wait and see see what we hear. And I can't wait to get back there. You know, it's it's um, it's a dream. And I, I, I'm so grateful to Arsenal for giving me those opportunities over the years. And uh, to represent them is a real honour. You know, I'm terrible at playing football, but to actually get to represent them on the pitch with a microphone is uh, is, is a real honour. And I'm very proud to do it. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed. We'll all be back soon. Fingers crossed. Well, listen, great to talk to you. I uh, really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, stay well stay safe and uh, you know we'll see you back soon I hope thanks very much indeed yeah come on you gunners thank you very much indeed to Nigel you can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Nigel Mitchell that is at Mr. Nigel Mitchell and hopefully we will see him microphone in hand standing pitch side at the Emirates with Arsenal 3 or 4 nil up at halftime on our way to a resounding victory over whoever the hell it might be it doesn't matter anymore does it you beat anyone at this point just for a bit of football we will see what happens over the weekend if there are any developments in terms of the Premier League's plan. Uh, if there are, or if there are developments from an Arsenal point of view regarding anything, James and I will discuss them on Monday in the Arsecast Extra. So please join us for that. Um, have yourselves... Um you know, whatever kind of weekend you can have. It's a bank holiday here in Ireland. Um, I mean... They don't make any difference to anybody now at this point. Uh, But that's what it is. But whatever you do this weekend, uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, James and I will be here on Monday. The blog continues as normal. So if you fancy a morning read every single morning, I'm still writing something every single day, whether it's about Arsenal or not. So, you know, arseblog.com for that. Arseblog.news for the news when there is some news. And I don't know what else to say other than thank you as ever. Thank you for listening. Uh, you know, share, subscribe, leave us a review. All those things might help pass a few minutes of your day as well. You know, I'm thinking of you here. I am, I promise. That's it. That's it. We'll leave it there. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. to Sky Sports News. Project Restart, the Premier League's plan to get football going again, was announced earlier today, and clubs are getting back to training, but under strict guidelines. Those include testing for all players, disinfecting of footballs and kit. Cars must be parked three spaces apart. 
Players will also have to wear a snood or a mask at all times. Those masks can be medical masks or comedy masks like a giant horse. There are to be no toilet breaks whatsoever and certainly no spitting. Each player must leave their saliva in a receptacle at the front door where it can be picked up on the way out. French kissing must be kept to an absolute minimum. The practice of ear flicking when somebody does something wrong in training is no longer allowed. However, players will be able to throw disinfected darts at the culprit's head. And very finally, and most importantly, the Premier League say players must only breathe when absolutely necessary. There is to be no excess breathing whatsoever. Violations of this rule could see points deductions. With these guidelines, the Premier League expect football could be back as soon as 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.